This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Today, Congressman Tim Ryan joins the show. Representing Ohio's 13th district since 2013, he has been a stalwart voice for blue-collar workers and manufacturing jobs. He ran for the Democratic nomination for president in the 2020 elections, and more recently, he's been working with Urban Yogis on Breathe for Eight, a mindfulness campaign in support of racial justice. Revolutions aren't about breaking something. Revolutions are about bringing forth something. Why do you think you're the only uh, presidential candidate out here talking about the need to be mentally healthy? No idea. It's the issue in Ohio. I'm Tim Ryan, and I'm running for president of the United States of America. We have to be decent. We have to be respectful. That, that has got to be a part of the next iteration of the country is where we get back to listening to each other, respecting each other. We can't be so divided because no matter what the plan is, it's not going anywhere if we're divided. And the Republican Party says, we don't have any money to help you. Are you kidding me? I want us to come together as a country. I want us to seize the future of this country. We are a great country. Hi, I'm Congressman Tim Ryan, and I'm fighting for working class people who are struggling every day. Sorry, not sorry. Congressman Ryan, I'm very excited to have you here to talk about Breathe for Eight. Will you tell our listeners a little bit about what you're doing? Yes. Breathe for Eight is an initiative by the Urban Yogis, which are four black guys in South Jamaica, Queens, who for the last five, six, seven years have been studying and teaching yoga and meditation to people in their community. And they started this initiative that I helped them with called Breathe for Eight. And that was an eight minute and 46 second meditation, obviously around the George Floyd situation. And it was an amazing event where they actually did it in South Jamaica, Queens, and they did a long meditation along with some community service and then an open discussion around racial justice. And it was an amazing kind of twist on the marches by having the contemplative mindfulness practice happening right in the middle of it. And we've seen a number of protests where people kneel for eight minutes and 46 seconds, which is obviously the amount of time that George Floyd's murderer knelt on his neck. What's different about meditating rather than just simply kneeling? Well, old guys like me can have an easier time getting back up. You know, if you're just, <laughs> it's so my knees, my back, that kind of thing. But, you know, I think 
moments of silence are different than meditations, not to get in a long discussion about it, but meditating and trying to come back to your body, trying to come back to your breath, and really being able to see your thoughts, see what's on your mind, and to take time and reflect on how we're all processing this, whether you're white or black or brown or male or female, really trying to take time to understand what are the emotions. We know there's anger. We know there's fear. There's also confusion. And just to have time to look at that is, I think, really, really important. The actual practice is called insight meditation, Vipassana practice. And I think these kind of practices could be very helpful as we all try to deal with the craziness of the world that we're living in right now. The practice of mindfulness is paying attention to the present moment. While your mind may try to go to the past or the future, you try to discipline your mind and to increase your awareness of the present moment, what's going on around you, but also what's going on inside of you so you can better understand your own habits, your own emotional states. And the benefits are remarkable and being proven uh, more and more each day by the research. They reduce stress, increase focus, um, keep you healthier because it boosts your immune system, make better decisions. I think a lot of people see you as sort of this blue collar, salt of the <laughs> earth, member of Congress, right, from Ohio. And I think they see people who meditate as like kale eating, hippy dippies. So are people surprised that you practice breathing and meditation exercises when they find out? A lot of the time. Yeah, you kind of have the blue collar persona from Youngstown, Ohio. And I'm a little bit ornery, a little bit scrappy, and I've been known to get loud. But these practices, I came to them through my athletic career, played lots of sports growing up, got a football scholarship to play at Youngstown State University a million years ago. And I loved Phil Jackson. I loved Michael Jordan. I loved his approach where he taught meditation. He taught yoga to his team and then went on to do it with the Lakers and Kobe and Shaq and that whole crew. And so I had these meditation instincts. I learned a contemplative practice called centering prayer from a Catholic priest I knew back at home. And then Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan were like affirming what I was learning from him. And that became a long journey for me around the real power of meditation. And now you look at LeBron James sponsors the Calm app, CEOs like Mark Benioff and others are pushing this out throughout their organization. So it's a lot different than it was 10 or 15 years ago. I think it's become mainstream. You see Headspace and these other apps that are selling like crazy now during the virus. And so it's a part of my life now, I'm not always as present as I want to be, but I'm working on it moment by moment. <laughs> Normally, people would look for these tools when there's a situation for which they feel like they don't have all the answers, right? Like I came to my yoga practice and my meditation practice because of my anxiety. I have really bad anxiety. Was there something that was going on in your life where you needed help or guidance or clarity or just quiet? Yeah, I mean, I think it was just an accumulation of things for me growing up, divorced parents, ton of conflict around that, that you don't really realize at the time you're ignoring, suppressing, dealing with, and how much it affects you. And so I just started to realize how much these practices helped me 
just thinking, oh, they help everybody for whatever reason. I, but I, it, it's over time where you really start to peel the onion back layer by layer and really trying to understand who you are. I mean, the old ancient adage, know thyself. In the art of war, it's like you better know yourself better than you know the enemy. I remember when we first went to the VA, I, I can't remember when, uh, 10 years ago, and we went to the DCVA and there was mindfulness-based stress reduction, there was yoga, it was all kind of weird at that point, <laughs> and, and I went back five years later and all the classes were booked. They no, they could they had to add classes. People couldn't get into the classes, and the vets were kind of complaining a little bit about it. And and this is when I see these vets, this is what they want it because is. it gives them the ability to take care of themselves. That is a constant process that reveals itself. And you have kids, right? And that whole thing, you're like looking at yourself at six years old. I mean, having kids is the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. Terrifying. It's the full catastrophe. It's pure joy and pure terror. And we have a 17-year-old now. He's out driving a car and his curfew is later than 9 p.m., you know? I never thought I would be the person that would wake up with one eye open at midnight worrying about the kids. I was the guy who slept through the night, and now I'm the guy worrying about the kids. <laughs> so, But that's all an opportunity to know more about yourself and think about what was I doing when I was 17? Was I responsible or irresponsible? I've got an answer for that. I'll save for another program. But it's all a process of learning, and that's why I think this moment almost cries out for contemplation. How did we get here? I think there is an opening. There's an awakening happening. How did we get here? Things are so fucked up. How did we get here? And actually taking time to process that. And that's why I talked, there's a difference between a meditation and just a kneeling moment of silence. In that eight minutes and 46 seconds, you have room, room to breathe, but room to see and try to understand. And I hope that what the urban yogis are doing can become a national effort in some sense to us all opening up and really having the adult discussion that we really need to have in the country. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I think meditation should be taught to all children in school. I think it is such a useful tool. And what it has given me is just that momentary sense of detaching from the emotion or the expectation of what I'm going through in that moment. And the detachment allows me to be able to see not only the situation clearer, but my position in the situation clearer. And that detachment 
is I think something that people think is not conducive to a life of having to strive to be better and to be a CEO and that drive because you really need attachment to achieve that. But when you're able to detach and get to really the essence of not only your own shit, but just human nature and what it means to struggle and how no one is without it, it's important. And those are all really important lessons to teach our young people. I want to talk to you a little bit about what's going on in the country right now. I mean, you asked the question yourself, how did we get here? How do you think we got here? How did we get here with policing? Then how did we get here with racism? And then how did we get here in this place of electing a narcissistic madman as the president and the most powerful man in the world? Yeah, that's all the things we're thinking about. So I've been trying to read and watch documentaries. I just watched 13th last week. I don't know if you've seen that or not, but that really unpacks how we got here from the time that the slaves were freed to the immediate construction of the criminal justice system to try to continue to get free labor because of the loophole that said you can be detained if you were a criminal. So that long story, and it goes before that too. I used to tell the story of Bacon's Rebellion, where a lot of the African American historians really try to zero in on where we started to get divided by the color of our skin. In 1676, Nathaniel Bacon approached the British appointed governor of Virginia, Lord William Berkeley, and requested an army commission so that he and the frontier folk could deal with the Native American problem themselves. Fresh off of a costly war with Medicom, who led an indigenous resistance against English settlement into Algonquin land, Lord Berkeley was reluctant to be drawn into another conflict with the Native Americans. He was also understandably reticent about arming a group of unruly whites and blacks on the Virginia frontier. Instead of sending help, Lord Berkeley resolved to fortify a chain of forts protecting the colonial elite in Jamestown a solution that provided little comfort to those out on the frontier. So the frontiersmen, black and white, rallied behind Bacon. When Nathaniel Bacon boldly proclaimed liberty to all servants and Negroes, Berkeley declared Bacon a rebel, and Bacon's rebellion was on. Because what happened during the rebellion was, before that you were divided by whether you were a Christian or a heathen, by your almost your ethnic group, were you Irish, were you French, were you this, were you that. But all the poor workers were taking on the economic royalists of that time, and that became a threat. The working class people, regardless of the color of their skin, became a threat. That's when the wealthy people started trying to divide everybody by the color of their skin. Because at its core, capitalism functions by allowing the exploitation of the many by the wealthy few. Right. Capitalism versus labor, the ultimate detention. And so they saw that as a real threat and still do. And you see it today in its modern version of the destruction of the unions. When the unions were 30, 35 percent of the workforce back where you come from and where I come from in Ohio, the unions were strong or in New York. And you had a very strong middle class. 
you had people who had pensions, they could retire with dignity, they had health care, they had a five day work week, could go on vacation, they had a good life. And so it's still going on today, just in, in different versions when you're talking about workers. But obviously, that system is very much still in place. You know, the statistics I know about crack versus cocaine or marijuana and all these things and longer sentences. And so we're trying to unravel a broken system. And the problem is you had a lot of people that didn't want to acknowledge it or talk about it, or they drove around the problem. They drove around the poverty. They drove around the issues around class. And then it pops up in the 60s. And you have a guy like Bobby Kennedy, who was almost able to bridge that divide in some sense. And then he got killed. Martin Luther King got killed. Nonviolent protests that were starting to move the needle. So here we are now and how this ties to the meditation piece. When you're meditating, there's a moment of awareness, right? You get lost in thought, right? TV's off, everything's off. And you're just thinking about something. You could sit there for 10 minutes and you're in a fight with somebody in your head or you're having a thought or whatever. And then the moment of awareness is the moment you recognize you're looking at the thought and you're not the thought. The thought's just happening, what your brain does. Right now in the country, I feel like we're at that moment of awareness where white people primarily are going, oh my God, all these things I heard about, I just saw this guy kneel on this guy's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Maybe what they have been saying is actually true. Boom. Do you think that politicians have spread this false message of colorblind, which is how I grew up with that phrase colorblind? in order to push a harmful agenda? Because it was the logic of the Nixon administration, right, which enacted a series of horrible discriminatory economic policies starting in 1969-ish. And then Nixon called it this free and open society. And in retrospect, I think that that was a way to basically place the blame for any poverty or crime that might occur on the individual or the culture, or their bad choices, rather than the systemic oppression that was happening. And I think the same thing happened in the 80s with Reagan, when he started to slash the budget for social programs, leaving basically every city leader without federal aid, and very little chance to battle poverty and unemployment in Black neighborhoods. So I think we have to be realistic as to how this problem was almost taken advantage of by political institutions. Oh, my God. Yes, of course. To continue with capitalism. And now we have this enormous wealth gap from the wealthiest few who are totally fine with exploiting workers. So if that is the scenario and that is all post the civil rights movement. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about 69 to Reagan to everything that we see today. How the fuck do we get out of this and how do we live by the ideals and act on the ideals that we know make this country great? Well, I think you start by recognizing what you just said, that this was perpetuated. It started off with the Southern strategy with Nixon. Political scientists will tell you that the realignment of the South from solidly Democratic to Republican is the single greatest partisan transformation in all of American history. The GOP 
could stay the course and follow pro-civil rights Republicans down one path or follow the advice of Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona, who famously said, after Nixon's loss, we're not going to get the Negro vote as a block, so we ought to go hunting where the ducks are. And that was his goal. And Lyndon Johnson knew that that was going to be utilized by them as the issues of race. Then it got cleaned up. By the time Reagan got in, it was about states' rights, right? We got to keep the states. So the federal protections around civil rights and voting and those kind of things could be undermined by pushing things down to the states. In most people's mind, if you're not trying to exploit racism, you think, yeah, local government does work better. Yeah, I'd rather have a smaller federal government and more people doing stuff in my community. So the question is now, how do we get out of it? We get out of it by, in my mind, getting back to the pre-Bacon rebellion concept of if you have just black people pushing certain things, there's not enough political might there. It has to be a coalition of white people and black people and brown people and women and men all coming together, which is the beauty of these marches that are happening around the country. And I know just in Northeast Ohio and the towns I was at, there were a lot more white people there than I ever, ever expected. And this is why I say this is the moment of awareness of people just like showing up. This is wrong. And I want to be on the right side and I want to try to help. And I think we have got to just continue to build that and cultivate that. I think it's happening. It's not happening quickly enough. It's really not happening in part because you do have the president of the United States who is clearly running a campaign on race, clearly trying to exploit the hurt, the pain, the fear, the historical wounds that this country has. He doesn't want to heal them. He doesn't want to open up a national conversation. He wants to exploit it. So this is going to have to be done without him. But it's about people of good conscience. One of the great speeches, I think, in American history is President Kennedy's Oval Office speech on civil rights. And when you hear the story that the speech was like half written and he was winging it for the second half, because obviously that's a big speech, right? You've done speeches. I've done speeches. You want it to be as good as you can. And they didn't have it finished. And he just went because it was from his heart. And he gives this speech about how would you like to walk in this person's shoes as a white person? We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities. Whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public, if he cannot send his children to the best public school available, if he cannot vote for the public officials who represent him, if in short he cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed? and stand in his place. Powerful stuff. And I think that's it. Bringing us together, not being colorblind, but appreciating how important our differences are and they're to be celebrated. That's how we do it, in spite of the President of the United States trying to keep us divided.
How long do you think Trump would need to breathe and meditate before he even found a tiny bit of peace and enlightenment? <laughs> Rip Van Winkle. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he'd be he'd be that 150 year old guy sitting in a cave somewhere in uh, the Himalayas. <laughs> Does meditation change how you approach your job in Congress? Yeah, I think I can let the fire go. You know, I get pissed off. You've seen four speeches and stuff, but letting that go and then trying to re-engage to do something productive. Big issue around trying to meditate is really non-judgment. People are the sum total of their experiences. You don't have to agree with them and you can push them and fight them on it. But having a little bit of that perspective has helped. And then what's happened lately for me, as I've been in Congress 18 years now, you start to really try to hone in on the root cause. So what's really happening here? And you mentioned it when you were talking about your meditation practice. Where am I in this world right now? What's really happening here? And a lot of the Buddhist teachers teach about the root cause. What's the root cause that starts the karma spinning? So I adapt that to politics. Like, What's the root cause of the environmental issues? What's the root cause of education challenges that we have. Just to give you a couple quick examples, when you look at education, the root cause of kids not being able to learn, yes, it's well-trained teachers and this and that, but it's trauma. Right. It's the underlying trauma that is not allowing these young children for their brain to function properly. Yeah. And so there's 20 to 30 years of science behind this now. You're in fight or flight mode, so you can't access your prefrontal cortex. So you lose all your executive functions and what's caused from trauma whether at home, on the streets, or wherever. It could be a million different things. Adverse childhood experiences is another way they say it. So the root cause is trauma. So if you want to fix education, you better get to the root cause of trauma with social emotional learning, mindfulness practices, contemplative practices. Food is a huge issue there too with making sure your body's functioning properly. Exactly. Nutrition is a huge part of that. And we've fallen short in that respect as well. Yeah. How can people support Breathe for Eight or the Urban Yogis? Go to the Urban Yogis, go to the Breathe for Eight. They're actually doing a training this summer that I think is 30 days long. And if you're interested in that training, obviously it's all going to be online, which is going to be super cool. You could go to urbanyogis.org too, and you can see these beautiful young people just really making a big difference. And i uh, just so excited to help them and support them. And there's a group in Baltimore now, friends of mine that have been there about 15 years in some tough neighborhoods in Baltimore, Ali and Atman Smith, two brothers and their friend Andy, and they're doing yoga and meditation in schools. So this is happening all over the country. And these guys are starting to take a leadership role. And it's really going to be fun to watch. So you have to support them if you can. Going back to Trump for a second, do you think that he was elected because the Democrats ignored the struggle in a lot of states across the country? Yes. I think the economic issues, I actually think the economy has driven elections since probably 2000 in some sense got interrupted a little bit. Obviously, Bill Clinton was elected on the economy in 92, won on the economy in 96. Gore should have won on the economy. But remember, he did not really use Bill Clinton. And so he'd lost the economic argument there. Bush came in, obviously, Obama won on the economy in eight, and he won again in 12, that it was getting better. But I think Trump exploited the economic anxiety in vast reaches of America. This whole idea that the economy was doing great was not 
reality. Some were, but a lot weren't. And the standard of living and lifestyles for people around retirement, around healthcare, around clean, safe neighborhoods, parks, and vibrant downtowns, that does not exist in the vast majority. Infrastructure, which is such a huge issue, but also bipartisan support. Even in rich states, like in California, we have pipes that are 100 years old that are just rotting, that nobody's doing anything about. Well, let me say this too, Alyssa, if I could just say real quickly, because I think it's an important point. A month or so back, we had 40 million people file for unemployment. And in that same month, the stock market had its largest gain since the Great Depression. 36 million people unemployed. 40% of families who have a worker that makes $40,000 a year or less lose their job last month. 4 million people didn't pay their rent and the Republican Party says, we don't have any money to help you. Are you kidding me? Where do you guys live? Food lines around the blocks at our food banks in the United States of America. One in five kids are going hungry. Your party can't even get food to them. This isn't a wish list. If it's a wish list, it's for the working class people. How about the Teamsters that are going to get a pension when this bill passes? Gentlemen's time is expired. Act, their pension gets cut in Gentlemen half. Gentlemen's time is expired. This is ridiculous. Gentlewoman from New York on the American Reserve. people. Gentlemen from Oklahoma honest. is recognized. I just want everybody to chew on that. If there's not an indicator that this economic system is completely broken, that's it. And that's how average people feel. And Trump was able to exploit that. And it worked. It worked in Michigan. It worked in Wisconsin. It worked in Ohio, worked in Western Pennsylvania and worked in a lot of places. Ohio has been trending red, right, in the last few years. And I got to tell you, some of the things your state government does make it seem more like Mississippi than Ohio. A very disturbing case in Ohio. You write that an 11-year-old girl there was allegedly raped. She is now pregnant. And under a new abortion law there, victims will not have the option of terminating a pregnancy. New tonight, could Ohio join more than a dozen states, including Kentucky, that don't require you to have a permit to carry a concealed weapon? One local lawmaker hopes so and is trying to get legislation passed. Ohio has a bill about abortion. Okay, no surprise. But in that bill is a line that says, if doctors, I'm paraphrasing, if doctors don't want to be convicted of murder, if a woman has an ectopic pregnancy, they will attempt to re-implant the fertilized embryo in the uterus. Sounds feasible, doesn't it? It's not. Now, some polls show that it's it's a close state for the presidential race. So what do you think Ohio is going to do in November? I think Biden's going to win Ohio. I really do. Trump is like the shines coming off the apple for obvious reasons that everyone listening to this podcast knows. But again, people are paying attention more. They've been home more over the last few months. They're watching him. Everyone's supposed to be wearing a mask and he's holding a rally. Rules don't apply to him. His friends are getting PPP loans. Kushner family's getting loans from the small business program. So I think Biden's going to win. I really do. And it's going to be focused on the economy. It's going to be focused on how do we get this economy back up and running within the context of the coronavirus, but post-corona. And Trump is losing. I just saw a poll today 
he's down about 10 points with white working class voters without a college education. He's bleeding college educated white voters. And in places like suburban Columbus, Ohio, suburban Cincinnati, Ohio, suburban Cleveland, Ohio, where a lot of those moderate Republican women, especially, and men now more and more are moving towards Biden. I think he's going to be in a lot of trouble. I'm really looking forward to election night. I just did an interview with Deborah Cleaver of Vote America, and she said that we need to be prepared that this election is not going to be called on election night because there are going to be so many mail-in ballots that are going to need to be counted. So we could have 10 days of not knowing who won and what is he going to do in those 10 days to make us doubt the results. I think you're right. Because our concept is election night, you walk away a, a winner or a loser for the most part. But I think you're right. It's probably going to last a little while. So it's good to have that in our minds and have that in American people's minds. I don't worry too much about him getting out of there. I mean, they'll go in and drag his ass out. But I do worry about what he'll do from election day until inauguration day. I do worry about that. And I think we all should. And hopefully the confinements of power can reduce what that damage is. But he'll be doing and saying anything. He'll be the Mad King by then if he's not already. I can't imagine that it's going to get worse. Yet here we are. And every day there seems to be a new low and <laughs> things feel so hopeless right now for so many people. And he just insists on spewing the most vile, racist things without even hiding it anymore. And we have so many systemic problems, right, that perpetuate not only racism, but violence in our nation. And we're in the middle of a pandemic that has been so badly mismanaged that who knows what's going to happen in the coming weeks and months. For fuck's sake, there are murder hornets. <laughs> Everything that could possibly be happening is happening. My friend said the other day that her worst nightmare is getting a murder hornet stuck in her coronavirus mask. <laughs> It's like, I mean, puts it all together. It's like, I don't want to laugh because it's just heartbreaking, but I feel like you have to at least release some of that energy. But I want to know and I want you to give me a little insight into what gives you hope. And also, what encouraging words would you give to Americans who are struggling so much right now? My hope is that the level of appreciation that's happened beneath the Donald Trump insanity and recklessness and death and all of that, that underneath that, I feel like there's an amazing connection that's starting to happen again with the American people. And it's basic things around food drives. You know, we got a text a few weeks ago that one of the neighbors was collecting food. And as soon as I got the text, my wife gives me a box of food and I run it over to the neighbors. I look out the window. There's two little kids walking a box down to their house. Beautiful beautiful things. The appreciation, I think, for our first responders, our frontline healthcare workers who do this shit every day. They do this in flu season all the time. I'll never be able to walk through a grocery store the same without a deep appreciation for this poor person who's working there for 12 bucks an hour and getting coughed on and sneezed on and no benefits. And my wife's a teacher, Alyssa, she's getting amazing texts, not so much now it's summertime, but of people saying to her, you guys, I don't know what we would do without you. I can't do this as a mom or a dad and you guys don't get paid enough and we appreciate you so much. The funny one was the one lady wrote this all out and then at the last couple lines were, uh, I made this kid, but he's actually yours and you need to come get him. 
<laughs> that's amazing. So this respect and appreciation that's happening, let's all hold on to that. That's us. Donald Trump is not us. We are. And those actions of kindness and appreciation and respect for working class people and everyone who's sacrificing, that's us. Hold on to that. And I think we can. There's the old business adage that culture eats strategy for breakfast. I think in politics, too, culture eats policy. Mm. And I just mentioned that's shifting the culture. There's no policy tied to that just yet. That's right. a cultural shift. And from the cultural shift will come policies that are based in respect, appreciation, deeper values of connectedness, equality, equality fairness, justice for all, all these words that get thrown around. If the culture doesn't shift and have an appreciation for that, the policies aren't going to shift. And so we've been trying to shift policies without shifting culture. And culture is hard to shift in a business, in a church, in anything. And so this may be the opportunity for a guy like Joe Biden, who can heal, who has suffered deeply in his life and knows suffering and can help us work through our suffering, whether it's around race or economics or any other thing. So this is a shift in culture. So maybe within this, there really is a hell of an opportunity for us to bring those policies that come forward from that culture shift. That's why I can laugh a little bit. That's why I can be hopeful because I think this is an opportunity we haven't seen in a really, really long time. And I actually think there's political coalitions that can be built around this as well that are well beyond the left-right divide. We talk about things like social-emotional learning. It has the support of the Brookings Institution and a right-wing think tank. So you have a left and a right. I think it's the Heritage Foundation supporting social and emotional learning. You look around like regenerative agriculture, sequestering carbon, healthier food, blah, blah, blah. That's not a left or right thing. Justice for all, criminal justice. There's already coalitions that have been built with the Koch brothers and left-wing groups around criminal justice reform. So if we shift the culture and we respect and talk and heal and recognize everybody suffered and has some suffering, and that's okay, how do we help each other get through it? then the policies will come online. And that, to me, is a very exciting time for what's America 2.0 look like. It'll be fun. Well, that just gave me hope. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Congressman Ryan, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. You may have heard this word mindfulness. It's become something of a buzz phrase of late. I'm going to give you one simple, serviceable definition, which is this. Mindfulness is the ability to know what's happening in your head at any given moment without getting carried away by it. Imagine how useful this could be. Just as an example, driving down the road and somebody cuts you off in traffic. How do you normally react? I think most of us, we normally react by having a thought, which is, I'm pissed. And then what happens next? You immediately, habitually, reflexively inhabit that thought. You actually become pissed. There's no buffer between the stimulus and your reaction with just a little bit of mindfulness, in that same situation, you might notice my chest is buzzing, my ears are turning red, I'm having a starburst of self-righteous thoughts, I'm getting angry. But you don't necessarily have to act on it and chase that person down the road screaming at them with your kids in the back of the car thinking you've gone nuts. We are angry. Many of us burn with it, and of course we are. The injustices in our country are multiplying. We've got a megalomaniac wannabe dictator in the White House sounding every racist dog whistle he can get his hands on. Economic inequality is at its highest level since the Great Depression. Our government rejects science and is totally fine with hundreds of thousands of us dying as a result. 
an accused rapist in the presidency, a Senate that won't do its damn job, and a huge number of our fellow Americans won't wear masks because they want their freedom? What? It's infuriating. It's also fucking exhausting. It eats at us. Our collective souls ache with the pain of our present and the weight of our past. Practicing mindfulness, finding moments to breathe in the chaos, gives us oasis of peace. It's in these spots where we can find new insights, can improve our own physical and mental health, and connect in ways that allow us to make meaningful changes in our world. Take a minute. Find space today to breathe, to reflect, to recharge. The battle is still coming. There is so much to do before November. We need you energized and healthy and ready for the fight. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.